Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. It is episode number 8080, 26th of April 2019. And yes, don't forget to visit us on our website, at our website, in our website, <laughs> vetgurus.com, and it's the place to be. Um, you can send us a little donation there if you like as well and see all our previous episodes, which you can search through and um, search for your favourite topics. Mark, I hear you have been on a, a trek. Tell me all about it. It was a wonderful walk, Brendan. It, I started in your city. We stayed overnight in Melbourne, and then we went down to um, oh, the uh, uh, um, the name of the place. Great Ocean Road. No, no, I was thinking of the, the starting point is... Um, uh, Torquay. Nah, I'll think of it in a second. But um, the, one of the highlights was the Cape, um, Cape Otway, where the lighthouse is, and um, that was about a third of the way into the walk. It's 104 kilometres from start to finish. Uh, Port Campbell is the end, and um, and uh, the start is still sneaking away in the back of my mind. Um, and um, they, it was a... Uh, it's really interesting on several levels. The first one is that it diverges. It actually stays on the coast. A lot of the famous drive, the Great Ocean uh, Road Drive, um, goes away from the coast, whereas the actual walk uh, um, managed by uh, uh, Victorian Parks stays relatively close all the way along the coast. And so you get to see some spectacular coast, culminating, of course, in visiting the uh, spectacular limestone formations known as the Twelve Apostles. So, so yes, all was awesome. Excellent. And there ain't too many apostles left, are there? They keep eroding unfortunately over time as, as as it tends to happen so i don't think there's actually 12 left although there's lots of little ones exactly right i think well <laughs> interestingly enough they were the, you know as uh, our wonderful guide tortoise they were originally known as the sow and piglets just by their shape but in 1921 the uh, the tourism the then tourism office in victoria decided that that was an unattractive name and in combination with the uh, commercial people the business chamber in port campbell they changed the name to the 12 uh, to the apostles um, but uh, that was uh, vernacularized vernacularized to um, the 12 apostles even though there were only ever um, nine, um, which dropped to eight uh, early in the piece. And then, of course, in 2005, that dropped to seven. So there's only seven of the 12 apostles left. Um, and the new ones aren't, the erosion doesn't seem to be happening quickly enough that um, we're going to get replacements anytime soon, Brendan. Yes, it's a, it is a spectacular region of the coast here in Victoria, in Australia, and um, yeah, I love that area. And um, 
the lighthouse that you went to, I presume you managed to have a bit of a walk up and around it. I did indeed climb. It's a bit. It's a. It's almost um, uh, like it looks quite large on the outside, and then when you climb the spiral staircase on the inside of the Cape Otway Lighthouse, it uh, it's much smaller than it is on the outside, and um, I had to be careful of not banging my head on the um, on the various um, you know, higher I've higher had- levels. Yep, but the view yes, from there is awesome. Was it? I I I have been there. Was it windy, Mark? When I, whenever I've been there, it's very windy. It's always along that coast. It's always windy, even when the weather's fine. There's a stiff breeze, but um, no, there was a, there was a very very forceful wind. In fact, it was the only time the 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 uh, the whole coast is renowned for its um you know inclement weather. And uh, being this time of year, I thought we would get to exercise the use of our wet weather jackets um uh but um you know we only had uh, that uh, stay at uh, cape otway at the lighthouse we had a little maybe two millimeters of sleety rain in the wind but the rest of it was awesome the weather was beautiful sunshine and screaming winds excellent well while you were doing that i was slaving away at work mark <laughs> although i did have a, a few days off for the the easter break um which for some crazy reason, seemed to go very quickly. And before I knew it, I was back at work yesterday um, and um, back into it again. And um, it made me think of the the main topic for today, which I hope is a good one that um, people will appreciate. But before that, Mark, I think we are going to jump into some news stories as usual. And the one I would like to start with is... I think it's pretty painful, this one, or it would be, and that is about a woman who was treated for having four bees living inside her eye, well, actually under the eyelids. And you think, how the hell would that happen? And um, it doesn't seem it would be possible. It was a woman in Taiwan was recently diagnosed with an eye infection caused by four bees camped under her eyelid. And we'll have a link to the actual um, report from Mother Nature Network, which was originally reported via CNN, and it has a, a video mark. I don't know whether you had a chance to look at the video, and it is pretty amazing. And um, yeah, you might wonder how four bees could possibly live or fit inside a person's eye or under the eyelids, but these weren't your average bees, as the article talks about. They're a tiny species of sweat bee that only grow to about three or four millimeters. So they tend to draw. They t- tend to be drawn to human perspirations, and that's why they think they got attracted to that particular area. And then the woman said she was out tending to a loved. It's a bit sad. This tending to a loved one's grave site, and the bees must have flown out of some weeds or flowers. And she started rubbing her eyes, and she was experiencing intense stinging sensation in her eyes as you would um, as you could imagine and after about three hours of agony and and rubbing her eye which um, would have annoyed the bees even more I expect so they would have been stinging her more and more she went to the um, local hospital where according to the head of the ophthalmology department who I think is the person who took the little video that you can see with our link at um, Taiwan's Fu Yin University Hosp- Hospital. Um, although I don't think I'd be going to this 
ophthalmologist Mark for my checkups. Um, he's quoted as saying, Thank- thankfully she came to the hospital early, otherwise I might have had to take her eyeball out <laughs> to save her life. Um, so, um, But they have a really good video of, her, of, of him removing those um, little bits there. So, And she went on to have a full recovery mark. So, yeah, that's uh, it's one of the things you don't want happening. Um, bees, sweat bees under your eyelids. Have, I've certainly been bitten by bees enough, Mark, and I've, I have swallowed a bee or two in my day. <laughs> I don't know about you, Mark. No, I've never swallowed a bee. I've, that's an experience I'm, I'm uh, um, you know, anticipating with some dread. I, I wouldn't recommend it, and um, it's it's quite scary because, as you can imagine, you're thinking, "Is that bee going to now bite me or sting me as it's heading down towards my stomach?" And hey, just, just, just tell it. us how it happened, Brendan. I've got. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, as I said, it's not the first <laughs> I've done it more than once when I was a child. Uh, so. <laughs> Um, I can't remember the exact details there, but I can remember actually then having this bee at the back of my throat and then reflexly um, gag reflex, yes, or the swallow or the gag reflex kicked into action and I swallowed it and then sort of panicked and um, yeah, it's um, that was the end of it and it reminds me of the old rhyme or the poem or whatever, you know, he swallowed a bee to eat the spider that wriggled and jiggled. Um, so I, I didn't. Um, I forget what you have to swallow to to get rid of the bee. Is it the spider mark? I'm <laughs> not <laughs> sure. Particular rhyme, but anyway, yeah, not something I'd um, recommend doing, Mark. So there you go. That's my first news story. The woman who was treated for having four bees living inside her eye or underneath her eyelid. My goodness, that just that's a, a showstopper. That one. Um, my first story is. Um, uh, relates the uh it's from the our favorite the mother nature network it relates the story of um uh 10 orcas and 87 beluga whales uh which are being held in russia um the russian authorities have just recently um uh, signed an agreement to release these animals um, that are being held at the moment in a so-called whale jail on Russia's far east coast. Now, um, there are a number of companies who capture the cetaceans and um, hold them at Shrednaya Bay um, in the town of Nakhodka. Um, and the whales were captured illegally last summer um, by these four fishing companies, and they reportedly plan to sell them to marine parks in China, um, particularly those marine parks uh, willing to pay sometimes millions of US dollars for uh, for the marine uh, mammals. Um, and so there is some incentive for that illegal hunting and trade to occur. But at the moment, scientists are just still evaluating the health and well-being of the animals and trying to formulate a plan to release them, to agree to, you know, to live up to the commitment they've made in that agreement. Um, and so at this stage, uh, the, they are uh, they have not been released, um, but the intent is to let them go as quickly as possible. The worry, though, I think, Brendan, is that in the way of many best intentions, um, the uh, it you know it might be that these animals are not well enough to go, and it might be some considerable time, maybe even years, before they get to go. Yes, and the the aerial pictures of the 
of the um, little cramped um, quarters that they were kept in there, Mark, was was quite disturbing as well as um, you could see there's, you know, up to half a dozen in each of those small little containers um, that they were kept in. Um, the other the other thing I found of interest there is this, the statement that was signed by the Governor of Russia's Primorsky region um, was co-signed by oceanographer Jean-Michel Cousteau, who was the son of the famed oceanographer Jacques Cousteau, who, you know, I can remember all the the little video, you know, he was a bit of a pioneer with those videos we used to, or, or TV shows, um, you know, back in the, probably when we were when we were a little bit younger, Mark, probably the 80s or the 70s, um, that I can remember watching Jacques Cousteau um, films as a as a child. Did, um, he did was. He that? was a, 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 um, a well-liked and famous and successful National Geographic f- uh, filmmaker as well as oceanographer. He, you know what else, Brendan? He's credited with um, uh, being the, um, the person to develop... Um, Scuba diving, as we know it, um, he uh, put a lot of um, technical right. effort into um, uh, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, and then used the the the, the uh, designs that he made to get um, that famous, um, you know, pioneering underwater footage, which uh, um, really has changed the history of um, the way we look at under the sea. So. It's good to hear Jean-Michel continuing the work of his famous father. Absolutely. Well, my second news story, Mark, is about rabbits. And I was a bit disappointed with this article, to to be honest, Mark. It's um, from the BBC, bbc bbc.com. Evidence of rabbits in the UK in Roman times, says Academics is the title of this um, article. And scientific tests on a rabbit bone found at Fishbourne Roman Palace in West Sussex has shown the animal was alive in the first century AD. It was a four-centimetre piece of tibia, which was found in 1964, but somebody just put it in a box and left it there until 2017 when a zoo archaeologist realised that it came from a rabbit. And um, this is where I um, disagree a little bit with their conclusions here, as you'll see in a sec. Academics believe the animal could have been kept as an exotic pet. Analysis, including radiocarbon dating, was carried out by the researchers. And let me just go down a bit to the um, crux of it. Um, The bone fragments were very small, meaning it was overlooked for decades, and modern research techniques mean we can learn about its date and genetic background. Researchers say they believe the rabbit was kept as a pet. And this is a bit I don't understand, Mark, so you might be able to elucidate where I'm not reading through this correctly. Um, Researchers said they believe the rabbit was kept as a pet as the signature in its bones suggests it ate its own faecal pellets. And the quote is, when they are in a hutch, they tend to eat their own poo, and that gives them a really interesting signature in their bones. Wild rabbits don't do that to the same extent, said Professor Sykes. Wow. I don't quite understand that. Do you um, Do you get what they're getting at there? I mean, we, we know that wild rabbits certainly, um, and, and pet rabbits, both both um, undertake seeker trophy, um, so they eat their own feces or poo. Um, so I, I, I don't know what they're talking about with the signature in the bones that they found from these tests, Mark, that indicated that it might have been a pet rabbit 
maybe it had um, <laughs> and they weren't keeping it outside enough um, and feeding it the wrong things. Um, who knows? But, um, yeah, I just found it a little bit questionable, um, those comments perhaps that they were quoted out of out of con- ton- context there by the, by the reporter. I do not know. But anyway, regardless, a rabbit was in the UK during Roman times, possibly as a pet. It'll be interesting to try and uh, we'll have to just do a little bit more digging because it, there surely there has to be more to that story about the um, isotopes in the bone um, and why that indicates it might be a um, a pet rabbit. Um, but um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know a little bit more because because clearly um, uh, our both our pet rabbits and their wild counterparts um, indulge in seeker trophy well pretty much in identical fashion and i don't see i mean logically i could see that perhaps you know the bone density you know wasn't wasn't uh, similar to to wild rabbits that were um uncovered um that from that sort of period of time um and, and that would make sense but i don't see how the seeker trophy or lack thereof um compared with the wild ones would would affect um, something in the bone with the testing, yes. Um, we'll have to try and track down the original paper or, or perhaps get in touch with Professor Sykes, Mark. Um, what's oh, your mine's final an news exciting story? one, but it it's, has a, as many of my exciting stories do, it has a tinge of uh, concern, uh, you know, the, the uh, double-edged sword effect. Um, I'm, my story, of course, is the uh, discovery um, of um, the King Island, particularly the King Island scrub tit, uh, but also the brown thornbill, two birds that were either the the, the brown thornbill was uh, is they're both critically endangered and uh, they both were feared extinct. The um, King Island scrub tit had been given formal extinct status, um, but a recent survey by the um, by my good friends at the uh, Difficult Bird Research Group at ANU um, in conjunction with uh, BirdLife Australia and Tasmanian government, they did a large-scale survey of the remaining swamps and forests on the island, which have been um, cleared significantly over the last um, 30 years. Um, They conducted more than 600 bird surveys over a three-week period, Um, but... um, but they did manage to find um, some uh, King Island scrub tits and brown thornbills, um, and uh, they significantly expanded the range of brown thornbills. Um, and um, it's just excellent to hear that uh, we've got um, uh, the scrub tit brought back from extinction. Um, my only I, these stories always, you know, I love the birds and I love to know that they're still there. Um, it's pretty good evidence that uh, habitat destruction is putting a lot of pressure on these um, species. Um, But it always just, I think some of these stories give false hope, Brendan. I think they're, you know, that we've discovered them. People go, oh, we've discovered them. We thought they were extinct, but they're okay. Where I think they only ended up finding about uh, um, 40 or so birds. So there's 
still critically endangered. It literally would just take one significant fire on the island and the birds are gone. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's, um, while it's exciting and good news, I don't think it's any reason to rest on our laurels. Um, I think we have to uh, secure that, um, ha- that remaining habitat and extend whatever we can to make sure the birds remain. Yes, there I was getting excited, as you were, and then you brought it all down by saying, why bother? You know, that's my um, nature. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you for that semi-uplifting news story, Mark. <laughs> um, yes. Well, let's talk about our main topic, Mark. So our main topic this year is the end of the process. A successful the, end. Yep. The good end, the successful end of, of treating a patient rather than the the, the one that's in the freezer or, or gets used for anatomy classes at university um, for some of the patients that um, don't quite work out at my clinic, although I must admit we do get um, we do get written permission from the clients um, to, to use them for educational purposes. If that is the case, that they do end up um, being used for anatomy classes with a with an animal that is euthanized. But we are not talking about those patients. We're talking about the ones that are going home. So we wanted to cover some of our thoughts and our process and the, and the logistics, I suppose, of, of discharging patients and um, how we go about it. And I know we do some of the sim- similar types of things with this, Mark, so I, I think we'll just walk through randomly. <laughs> ideally, ideally, ideally the love the way we that do. we um, – I depend heavily on you to provide an agenda and then, <laughs> then we just completely trash it and dance around from topic to topic, whatever – jumps into our mind to say at any particular time but it's good to have a skeleton to start with i must admit that's right it's always good to have a skeleton mark um always good so i'm going to start with the first um well it is the first dot point in our um list of discharging patients and that's the bill um and what i normally say with that is um the receptionist or the discharging nurse fixes up the account um, fairly early on before we start going through everything else. Um, and I'd even go back one step from that, Mark. I would. Um, and it's avoiding, yes, it's it's avoiding the bill shock. Um, <laughs> if it is a complex surgery or a patient that's been in hospital for several days and that's keeping the client up to date with, hey, we've had to, um, the surgery took an hour longer than it should have, um, so it's X dollars more for that particular patient or we've had to keep it on the drip for a bit longer and and, and keeping the client informed that, um, you know, the costs are unfortunately increasing with, 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 your, with your pet rather than just having them sign that admission form, which has the estimate um, for the initial treatment, um, and then they come to pick up their patient, and it might be twice that or, or, or more than that, um, and it avoids lots of lots of hassles um, on both sides, Mark. So that's my first comment about. about and there's two um, things I'd add to it, Brendan. I think you've oh, you've hit the ball out of the park. I think communication is everything, and ongoing communication, but while the animals in hospital really does make a difference, and particularly with our exotic patients because they, um, you know, the the course of 
treatment or therapy or whatever will start at a particular point, but we, they, it often evolves quickly into something else. And uh, so, you know, the classic rabbit that has gut stasis, and then we identify um, uh, bone uh, teeth, uh, uh, molar, the, the uh, cheek teeth spurs. And so we've got to treat that problem before we get the gut stasis under control. Um, the communication and the communication specifically about um, the estimate and the current total for the invoice and the expected total there, absolutely critical. And I, I say to uh, our staff that um, we definitely want to be bold. This is an area that it's easy to be um, a little bit reticent to talk about. The people don't want to hear it. It's a bit of a confrontation sometimes, but the best thing, the least trouble always occurs if you are um, out there and say, this is what the invoice is at. This is what the invoice is likely to be when we finish. Is that okay? Um, and uh, and if there is any discrepancies with the estimate, making sure that that's um, that's all nice and clear before the the um, the actual people show up to pay the invoice. I think you've hit the the nail on the head there. And what what what's your approach then, Mark? If you have that client who is reaching their limit as far as um costs, for instance, they might have a, a set amount that they could afford with their their, their pet and um, you discover there's some complications there or it does need surgery and it was initially a hospital case, case and there's several several hundreds of dollars that need to, um, need to be um, put into this patient on top of what we, you initially estimated. Um, what's your approach then to that client who then turns around to you and says, um, Sorry, well, I, I think, just can't afford that. Um, it's the it's the same theme communication that starting out with a reasonably good estimate and an understanding that that may not be the end puts people in the zone where um, where they are aware that that might happen. And certainly, we'll have clients who uh, you know say, "Look for that for that uh, my current circumstance for that animal, I can come to a." whatever it is, $1,000 invoice, but I just cannot go any further. And we appreciate um, that communication so that we understand the limits. Um, and at that point, before we even get there, we do talk to them about, you know, the chance that we get there and that there is more to do and, um, and, uh, and you know, the options then may be to, to stop and see what happens if we don't go ahead with more treatment we discharge with um with care or sometimes we have to consider um and we have had a, a case in point recently a bird that um had reproductive tract problems and had a um an an egg that was uh stuck in the oviduct and we were able to get that out but the reason it got stuck was because there was an oviductal tumor and of course as soon as we got to that point um the clients uh, decided rather than attempt a surgery to solve the problem they would prefer to go no further and and just um that communication letting them know that uh this is treating what we know at the moment, but there may be more. Um, and if we can't um, treat uh, or um, further diagnose, then sometimes the right thing to do is not go any further. But it all harkens back to communicating well, Brendan. Yes, and it's always it's always that issue of, of, of those ones being difficult I find still difficult to deal with and trying to explain to them 
that we do need to to ideally put some more money into treating this patient for an optimum result. But also understanding that some clients have reached their physically have, and, and financially have have reached their limit mark, and not as a business owner, I suppose, and not backing down. Um, it, it's a poor way of describing it and, and saying, oh, okay, we'll do that for free um, because we're suckers um, for that sort of thing, I think, in it's the so industry. Uh, we feel so close enough. to that. If we could just we, get over this hurdle and do this, then everything would be great and we'd all be heroes. But I'm like you, I, I have that urge myself, but I keep coming back to the practical reality that um, that if we don't, run a successful business if we don't um, apply those business principles we won't have a business and then we won't be able to do our job the other there's one other interesting thing I um, always highlight about the bill and that is um, the husband and wife phenomenon um, we will regularly have uh, um, uh, you know a circumstance where we've been communicating with one partner um, and I don't mind saying it here in public that it's most often the wife um, and we're upfront, everything is good. And then at some particular point, um, the husband will step in and, and uh, have a completely different perspective or understanding or um, uh, um, expectation of what uh, we're up to and what uh, the costs will be. So I always counsel the staff to, first of all, record who they've been speaking to because that prepares subsequent communication if we know it's with a different person to be a little bit more circumspect. Um, and um, just, yeah, just to often try and set a particular, you know, person who's in charge of paying the bill, who all the communication goes through. The more people in the family who um, have elements of the communication and not the total thread, then the more likely it is to go pear-shaped at that uh, pay-the-invoice stage of the procedure. Yes, great point. And I think there it's having a designated person um, who's, who's nominated by the family to, to deal with as far as phoning the clinic, dealing with um, financial matters. And um, otherwise what can happen is not only you end up speaking to lots of people and spending lots of time saying the same things to other family members. So if if it is that unfortunate one where, where you're having difficulties that um, they may be playing each Playing, playing off, uh, playing. <laughs> say, uh, play, uh, playing every, playing against you um, with, with with each of them. Um, and I know exactly what you mean. The, the, the fact that they, you know, you said to, um, you know, my wife said this was what was said, and now there's no record of who said what to whom, and they do play that sort of grey area between. Um, occasional clients play that uh, yes. grey area between. You said it was only going to be fifty dollars, um, and you'd said it was a hundred to the wife, and um, vice versa. Yeah, yes. So, yeah, great, great, great point, Mark. Um, and I think that so sorting out the bill um, is, is is often the I think the most traumatic potentially for everybody involved. And but as long as you're open and you go through that process very early on, as far as um, nominating to the client what the costs are going to be and updating them regularly, then when it comes to to doing that final payment for the services rendered, that um, it goes smoothly. 
And the rest, I think, Mark, it, 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 icing on the cake as far as everything else goes, it, it's it's all the presentable bits as, as far as presenting the animal um, presentably um, to the to the client and making sure that 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 dog spay that's going home isn't smelling of feces or urine because it peed itself in the cage on on waking up and um, had a bit of a thrash around the cage and done a bit of a poo. It's it's not a good look, is it, Mark? When you when the nurse takes that takes that patient out to give it to the client and um, you can whiff, um, you get a whiff of that urine or feces of that animal. So it's it's ensuring the obvious, but um, it's making sure it, it looks good. The surgery site is nice and clean um, and it's, it's, it, it's, it is inspected. And, you know, when, when you get busy around discharge time, it's it's not rare for for people to, to forget sometimes about, about looking at the surgery site and um, having a bit of a peek there. And um, it's pretty important there, Mike, isn't it? Because you might have that animal out in the waiting room and the and the client says, What's that yeah. what's that drip drip of blood on the floor from the patient? And um, yeah, nobody had a bit of a look at, at the wound and you realise that it had a bit of a chew at the sutures or, or something similar. So it's making sure the surgery site looks nice and clean and, and dry and, and fresh, um, making sure the rest of the patient look, looks good and, and we've given it a bit of a wash or a clean if it did have a bit of a, a whiff with it. Um, and we always put bandanas on the dogs and cats um, and, and it's amazing. We've, we still have some dog and cat clients who um, regularly walk their p- dogs past our clinic and they still they got the bandana that we gave them. When that and that and that was when it was castrated ten years ago, and they still still walk with that bandana that's all grotty, and they've washed it three hundred times, and it's a faded bit of um, cotton there, but um, they love it. So, I think bandanas are fantastic because it's that um, the badge of courage, um, the little bandana that they've had the surgery, and um, we try and you know the nurses are much better than me but we have all different varieties of, of bandanas and they tend to match it either with the personality of the patient or the um or so, the so Brendan, do you patient. um with because um, so one of the things we've started doing recently is to putting a to put a puff of either um the uh dap or feliway onto the bandanas that the animals go home with and um it's our you know, it's I have no large double blinded cohort to um to assert any validity to to this, but I think um that it probably does just mean that animals are a little bit more at ease when they go home and, and they've got that constant whiff of the the pheromone very close to them um, once they do get home. So do you do that? No, but I certainly will be from now on, Mark. Great idea. Um, put in a little bit of a spray of that um, OD dog on the um, bandana. Um, yeah, excellent, excellent. I will be um, instituting <laughs> that tomorrow, Mark, when I get back to the clinic. Um, what do we want to talk? Uh, do you want to grab the next um, topic, Mark? About um, um, you, you've handed that beautiful smelling patient and surgical site looks fantastic um, not just because of mark's intradermal sutures that mark has done the the um, next step is it's actually a bit paradoxical because i do this because i do this more religiously now because you suggested it um i'm i really make a huge effort um to get a fairly uh, specific set of discharge notes onto a discharge sheet now um, this has become even more important as we've, you know, we're up to, um, I think we've got 
uh, five or six veterinarians, a couple of part-timers and a, um, uh, three or four full-timers. And so it often means that the vet who did the procedure may not always be the vet who sends the animal home. And, um, and while it's easy to verbally remember all the things you want the the uh, client to keep an eye on because you did the surgery or the dental procedure or the, the ran the medical case, um, it's much harder if you're the late vet and you're you've been unfamiliar with those things um, to uh, clearly put them together in a summary form. And so having them written down um, that. Uh, saves the the uh, failure of communication that sometimes occurs between shifts um, and it just means that the clients have something uh, written to refer back to because they you know our clients are good and their comprehension skills are great um, but trying to remember seven or eight medical points to keep an eye on um, is, well, it's probably beyond me, let alone um, clients who don't do it regularly. So um, having written notes that they can put under a fridge magnet on the fridge and and just pay attention to over the, the uh, few days after they go home, that makes a world of difference. And I thank you, Brendan, for making the suggestion that I bring that to practice. And I think it's often overwhelming for the client too. They're, they're so excited about seeing their pet going home and um, you'd be telling them several things, even if it's only three or four things. Um, and, you know, they're, they're more often than not going to forget at least one of those. So having it written down is very important. And my other tip with that is um, you, you you tell them at least twice with it and that would be the, the, the reception nurse um, goes through the discharge sheet and, and says, here's the medication, here's what you need to give is the Elizabethan collar that you need to keep on twenty four seven, etc. Um, then, if it's if it's a certainly a non routine case, I, uh, the vet would be discharging the animal as well. So I would then call the client into the consultation room, and then have a look at the discharge sheet, and then go through it again with the client in front of them. So they've we, we've mentioned it twice to them, and. The second or the third tip, if it is the third, um, would be we do that. I do that. I tend to do that before yes. the animal is given to the patient, uh, to the client, because if you just give them Rover um, or, or the cat, um, that they're just going to start getting excited and they'll they'll forget everything. So you, so don't show them the patient, their animal, their pet. Um, go through everything first. Um, same story with with our next. Um, Next comment, which is medications and, and doing a medication demonstration, Mark. Um, I do the same. So I'd, I'd have, if, if it's an animal that needs medicating anything, then then something basic. Um, I would then be doing exactly the same, calling the client into the consultation room, um, going through that discharge sheet, which would also have a list of, of what medications to give and when to start or commence. And then I would say to them, here's the pain relief um, medication. This is one tablet twice a day with food, for instance, um, and here is how you give it to your animal. You could put it in a little bit of food or push it down the throat or whatever. Um, and it's only after I've gone through all that that we would then um, bring, the, bring the patient through to them um, and everybody's excited to see everybody and um, potentially also 
give them a demonstration of medicating the animal and that particularly applies applies to all the small mammals and the reptiles where we may be having to demonstrate um, oral medicating these animals um, in particular ways. That's that's exactly right. And Brendan, this has become increasingly important as as, uh, meloxicam and other non-steroidals have become an important part of our armament for at uh, you know, post-operative care, um, there there are very important rules to follow uh, for our clients to make sure that they don't administer those NSAIDs when things aren't going the right way. Um, and it and it's there's definitely been cases that have uh, that have gone to the board where the clients have persisted in giving um, a non-steroidal in the face of dehydration and. Uh, and uh, vomiting because they weren't given those instructions clearly. Whereas if they're given in writing, um, there can be no question that the clients are aware of what's going on and uh, and it's much easier for them to follow those instructions rather than, um, you know, having to wrote, you know, commit them to memory in the consult. So the discharge sheet. And um, if they, once again, particularly non-steroidals jump out to me, but also antibiotics, if clients are not giving them properly it's much more likely that they'll you know half administer a dose or or feel like they've gotten some in and they haven't gotten any in or um, worse think they haven't gotten any in and then double or triple dose so um, so I think that demonstration and the discharge sheets they're um, they're critically important parts of the discharge Absolutely. And relating to that discharge, I think the other the other important factor there is is scheduling and it will probably already have been done out at reception when they go through the bill and the initial um, list of the medications and, and the discharge sheet is um, the revisit uh, mark. Um, and we, we typically, apart from, um, well, even routine ones, even routine desexing, say in a dog or a cat castration or spay mark and, and rabbit and kidney pig desexins, um, for example, um, they are strongly encouraged to have a post-operative check and, and those ones for the routine surgeries are with a, just with one of the nurses um, and that's included um, as, part of the, as part of the estimate for that um, particular animal. If it's a non-routine desexin, um, not, not a desexin procedure, then, and this is a tip I got from you, Mark, then we will... Um, add a revisit consultation onto the bill that is paid at the time of discharge. Um, so the revisit consultation is is prepaid, I suppose, is the way to say that, isn't it? Um, and the, the advantage of that, Mark, is that, um, yeah, it works fantastic and, and it's a, a great little tip that you told us a, a fair few episodes ago because when that animal comes back in for the revisit consultation, um, it is already prepaid and then um, you, you examine the animal and you spend time seeing it, which is why you're charging for it, which you have previously done so, um, and you say to the client, okay, um, it look, all looks good once you've examined the patient and the surgery site and off they go and they think, gee, I didn't have to pay for that, but they've actually prepaid that. Um, uh, it's a and great, it is always a little bit do, difficult because there's, you know, there's cases where you might, be thinking that you're going to have four or five progress exams on uh, particular procedures. Um, there are other times where you you know you're fairly confident you're going to only have one, and then you might need one or two more. But um, I think um, if you've if you think there's um, uh, a 
chance that, um, uh, and like you said, we try and make sure even with the subcuticular layers and the fact that we're not removing sutures, all those routine things, we want to have a look at the wound and make sure everything's good. If people have prepaid it, um, they feel almost like, you know, there's no additional cost. Um, I've already paid for all this, so I'm going in. So we don't miss too many of them. Whereas if you book it in and, and people haven't paid for it the, and everything looks good, they are likely to go, oh, you know what, looks okay, I'm not going to come in. So um, we found it to be a, a great advantage to um, to prepay those with the uh, the original invoice and uh, then when they're charged, the the, uh, the uh, when they come in and they are charged for, the balance is zero. Yes, exactly. And I think the other important point relating um revisits is 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 other follow-ups and and the big one there and i must admit we're sometimes slacking off with that a little bit is ideally every single animal that's been in the clinic as a patient whether medical or surgical has a follow-up phone call the next day um, regardless of how simple the procedure was um, so they just get a courtesy phone call from the receptionist saying how's rover going um Good, um, excellent, and and I think they really appreciate it because um, not only do they think, gee, they they took the time and they were kind enough to to phone us and, and ask how Rover was going, but but also it gives them the opportunity of of, of then firing off the yeah. twenty questions that they'd saved up that they fought, forgotten about um, after the animal was discharged because they were just yeah, oh, definitely. Um, it's a really interesting thing. We've paid particular attention in our local area to the the fact that um, there once was a time where we we were the only practice who were doing those um, 24 or 40 hour, 48 hour post-discharge telephone calls, but now it's become much, much more common and, uh, and certainly, um, uh, you know, we're looking for other ways to set ourselves apart from the local practices because it certainly is a thing that uh, clients... Um, uh, Respect, and as you say, it uh, speaks to how much um, everyone cares about what's happened to the case, and it also means it gives people that opportunity to ask those, you know, since we've come home, this has happened. What does that mean? And uh, and it just puts their mind at rest. Um, we found with our current system um, that uh, that a significant number of people, you know, will the the sort of the middle of the day is when the staff. Um, have some uh, time where they can make these calls between other jobs. Um, but that's often a time when people are at work. And so a significant number of these calls don't yes. immediately get answered. And um, and so we would routinely, once we'd made that call, if we didn't get an answer or weren't able to leave a message, um, we'd send a quick text just to, um, to touch base and uh, say that we're interested to hear how things are going. Give us, drop us a line or reply to us with a text just to let us know everything's okay or give us a yell if there's a problem. So there are multiple ways we can make that communication and still maintain that dialogue with the client. Absolutely. And even if they don't immediately or, or later on get back to you, it's a, I think it's such an important thing just to at least have have that message that you've left and saying, look, hey, we're thinking about your little pet and just hoping everything's going to plan as we expected and um, give us a call if there's any issues um, with it. Yeah, so it's good It's good customer service, isn't it, Mark? And it's, it's, well, and not it, only look, that's it's the right exactly thing. the right thing to do. And, and we've got to remember that when we 
do the marvelous things we do in the treatment room or in the surgery, um, the clients are not privy to um, to that excellence, um, and all they see is uh, the conversation they have with us at the consultation, the communication we have on the phone, the discussions they have with the receptionist, and the discharge. And so, trying to match the standards of those interactions with the clients with the standard of excellent surgery and medicine that we do just gives a message to the client that that's what we're actually doing. So I I think it's overwhelmingly important, Brendan. Absolutely. Absolutely, Mark. Um, Anything else you wanted to add about our our little chat about discharge in patients? My only other... suppose tip is that um, and you mentioned it indirectly a couple of times there I think um, that uh, I've I've had a few stories where people have felt um, uncomfortable in the waiting room I think uh, even when we have nurse just discharges um, getting someone into the consult room so that they're uh, they don't necessarily feel exposed or they don't feel, you know, sometimes people even get to the point where they won't ask a question because they're worried that it might make them look foolish. Um, and uh, and certainly in our waiting room, the, there's always a chance that uh, a dog comes in as you're discharging a, a bird or a rabbit. And so having them in the consult room where they feel safe and removed from the anxieties of other places in the hospital um, and it, you know, makes it easier to get that animal out and demonstrate the wound without the stress of uh, whatever else is going on in the waiting room. I think um, using the consult room for that purpose it does put a little bit of extra pressure on the scheduling and timing, but um, it's well worth it, I reckon, Brendan. Yes, it certainly is, Mark. I couldn't have said it better myself, as usual. You're very, very eloquent with your, with your um, summary there, Mark. Well, I think um, I think we might end it there, and we're a, we're a tiny bit early for lunch, which is good. I, I, I've been threatening for weeks, haven't I, that um, that we'd have a really punchy show that will actually go for half an hour, which I think is very optimistic. I don't. I think we, the only time we'd ever do a half hour show these days is if we split one of them into two, Mark. Um, but but there you go. We have a little show that's a bit earlier finish than usual so thanks for listening and um we will talk to you all what's happened to the outro next week if i can outro man come back the outro here he is we'll talk to you next week bye Thanks again and see you next time.